Father, thank you for tonight. I do pray that you will guide and direct as we study your word. And uh, we had asked that you would lead us into all truth. And you'd, Lord, just motivate, stir us, empower us to live our lives for you. Grant us a great uh, enthusiasm and passion to glorify you in all that we do. And we just pray that your word would be living and active and sharp as a two-edged sword tonight in each of our lives. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, Hebrews chapter 6. We start with verse 9. Beloved. So remember, this is a pastor initially talking to his congregation. And so he's using that word that's probably similar to what when uh, on Sunday or Saturday night when I say I love you. And uh, everybody responds. I guess I could do that here, too. Love you. So, beloved, we are convinced of better things. Better things, better things means they're not doing so well. Uh, means they could do better than they're presently doing. Better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. Though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, a hundred years old, um, Abraham was when it finally came to realization Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So in your notes, number one, Hebrews 6, 9. But beloved, we are convinced, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation though we are speaking in this way. So I uh, periodically write what I call a position statement or a doctrinal statement. I write it in a uh, fairly short, usually one sentence, sometimes two, uh, never more than three, about various things in the Bible. And uh, so it's succinct and clear. And somebody says, what do you believe about this? I can say, well, here's my positional statement or my doctrinal statement on that. So here's a, a statement that I've written. We are not saved by good works, but if we are truly born again, we will have a changed life and good works will follow. We're not saved by good works, but if we are truly born again, we will have a changed life and good works will follow.
So the writer of the Hebrews says, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. Things that accompany salvation. That means if you're truly saved, there will be some things that will accompany, that will follow, that will be an evidence uh, that an individual is truly saved. In Titus chapter 2, Paul's writing to a young pastor whom he's left. Paul's uh, uh, method was he would start a church and he always had half a dozen to a dozen uh, men that he was training, mentoring. And so when he started the church and moved to the next one, he would leave one of these fellows behind to be the pastor. And so Titus was an individual that was at Crete. And, uh, and so he writes back to him, giving him instruction on how to pastor. He said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That means uh, the, the opportunity or the availability doesn't mean everyone is saved, but can be. Bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us. Redeem us, that means that we were in hock to the devil. He owned us. And he came to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And so Paul writing to Timothy, or excuse me, Titus, he said, salvation has appeared to all men. Jesus Christ provided that salvation by his death on the cross. We are born again by faith. But if we're born again, then <clears throat> good works will follow. And he admonishes, he said, to redeem us from every lawless deed. So he's going to redeem us, but he's going to redeem us from every lawless deed, purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And then he says this to him, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so I occasionally read that and say, all right, I'm a pastor. I can preach this with confidence and authority because Paul gave me uh, the instruction to do that as he did Timothy or Titus. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, this is the key salvation verse. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Through faith. That, uh, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works. Doesn't take works, that's verse 9. And then verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And so we're saved by faith, but if we are saved, then... Uh, our heart changes, God works in us, the power of the Spirit works in us, and works follow. We begin to do things that are pleasing to the Lord, and if they don't, then it's very probable that the individual uh, had um, an experience that was just a, an experience that wasn't a born-again experience. One of the, uh, if I can call it culprits, for the number of people, and I think the number is fairly large, who believe they're Christians but are not. I have conversations with people all the time. And I ask this question. I ask it. Um, it's a good question to ask. You can use it. I, I say, if you died tonight and stood before God, and he says to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And so their answer will very clearly indicate whether they, uh, why they're thinking they're going to make it to heaven and you hear all kinds of answers. Uh, rarely do I hear the right answer. 
And so one of the culprits for this happening is that we've come up with this methodology, as it were, of bringing people to Jesus that's very, very simplistic and is so simplistic that it's not complete. And uh, I was listening to someone the other day talk about um, their missions work in another country, South America, and they said that they walked around and knocked on doors and asked people if they wanted to invite Jesus into their heart. So where'd that phrase come from? Invite Jesus into your heart. Is that how you become a Christian? Now, it comes from Revelations 3, and it's not an invitation to lost people. It's an invitation to those who have backslidden and have gotten lukewarm. To the church of Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And he says there, uh, those whom I love, I discipline, and, and therefore be zealous and repent. Then the next phrase is, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. And so from that phrase, that verse, this uh, invitation to people, ask Jesus to come in your heart. Uh, That's not a salvation prayer. That's not a salvation invitation. And uh, many people have responded to that invitation. And then they go through the rest of their life being inoculated, as it were, uh, from the gospel because they think they're saved. And uh, salvation is easy in that it requires no works, but it's not simple. There is some uh, key things that must be believed and some commitments that need to be made. Otherwise, the born-again experience doesn't happen. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... So the, this, this verse, in verse 20, Jesus is talking to, he's saying there's going to be those at the end of their life who stand before him, and he's going to say to them, depart from me. I don't know who you are. I think, I read, every time I read that verse, I think, man, that would be like the worst experience because there's no do-overs, there's no uh, mulligans, there's no checking, second chances. You can't say, ah, oh, uh, it was the pastor's fault, my mother's fault. Uh, the Sunday school teacher's fault. When we get there, uh, that is before Christ, uh, it's, we better have it figured out. And that's why it's important that we would think about our own life and where we are. Number two in your notes, Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust so as to forget your work. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So, Mike, if you raise eight kids, you notice common, uh, uh, common things about kids. And uh, my kids all said some of the same phrases when they were very little. One of them was, I can do it myself. They all said that. And another one thing that they all said is, it's not fair. Uh, She got a bigger cookie, uh, whatever the issue was, but they are quite concerned about fairness and justice. So Patty and I discussed what we were going to do when that statement came out of their mouth because it came out regularly. And so our response was, uh, you're right, it's not fair. And there's going to be many more things in your life that will not be fair. Life is not fair. It isn't fair until you get to heaven and then it's all evens out. 
God is just and he is the judge and everything that didn't happen here that should have will there. Uh, and so you just have to be patient until you get to heaven. Life is not fair in your notes, but it will be at the judgment seat of Christ because God is totally just. He does not forget our work. And so the writer of the Hebrews says that God is not unjust so as to forget your work. So that statement right there is another one of my position statements, one of my doctrinal statements. Life is not fair. Life is not happy. Life is not fun. Life is hard. Life is unfair. And life will not be happy until we get to heaven. It's the happy place. And we get there, everything will be great. In the meantime, we run the race with endurance. And we don't grumble and we bear much fruit. And when we stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, he will reward us and everything will be fair. Deuteronomy 32, 4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Genesis eighteen twenty five. far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal just, justly? And so God does, and it will happen at the judgment seat of Christ. Number three in your notes, Hebrews six eleven through 12. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. <clears throat> Laziness and apathy are a major part of our flesh and sin nature. And as disciples of Jesus, diligence is a key character trait to, to seek and develop. So you've heard me say this before. We had 10 goals for our kids in our parenting. And uh, one of them was is that uh, when we finished doing our job, they would be very diligent as far as their character. They would not be lazy. And uh, they were all born lazy. Took after their mother. <laughs> Uh, I can say that because she's not here. <laughs> and so, but we would, uh, had to teach them uh, to be diligent. And so the writer of the Hebrew says that uh, wants them to be diligent. So we're lazy and apathetic and lukewarm and uh, don't do what we're supposed to do by, uh, that's our nature. And so diligence is a key character trait that we need to work on in developing Proverbs twelve twenty seven. A lazy man does not roast his prey. The precious possession of a man is diligence. Romans twelve eleven. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Proverbs thirteen four. The soul of the sluggard craves gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Number four, uh, Hebrews six eleven through twelve. Again, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Uh, so, uh, Paul says, examine yourself and see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself and see if you are in the faith. That means examine yourself and ask yourself the question, am I truly born again? And if I die tonight, Am I going to hear Jesus say, depart from me? 
Or am I going to hear him say, enter into the joy of your master? And so there's key things to look for in our life. And um, one of them is, is a changed life. And when we would ask ourselves, what does that look like now? And so I think it's, a, it's the, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You might say, well, I'm not very righteous, so I must not be a Christian. <clears throat> it's not where you are that determines that. What it, it determines that is what's in your heart in the sense of what you long for, what you want, what you desire, what you press for. And so I was talking to a young man here about a month ago, and uh, he's struggling, uh, had struggled with pornography. And so I'm holding him accountable. And uh, he said that he, got, he felt so guilty because he went a long time, did really well, and then he messed up. He said he felt so guilty. The next day at work, he actually threw up. He got so sick to his stomach because of the guilt that he felt because of the sin that he'd committed. And he said to me, he said, I don't think I'm a Christian. I said, a non-believer wouldn't throw up. Only those who are grieving over their sin and convicted about what they did. And so that's a clear indication that a person's heart has changed and the Spirit of God lives in them, works in them, is that conviction and that grief over sin. And so blessed are those who, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And uh, that's a key thing. And assurance of salvation is based on our changed life and endurance until the end. Did I give you that? No. Assurance of salvation is based on our changed life and endurance till the end. Number five, Hebrews six eleven through twelve. Again, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators. Imitators. You want to circle that word in your notes there. Imitators are those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The word inherit, inherited, inheritance, refer to the rewards that we will receive at the judgment seat of Christ. So five times the Apostle Paul uh, writes and says, observe what I do, how I live my life, and imitate me. Every time I read that, I think, oh, a guy would really have to have a lot of uh, uh, confidence to be able to say that. If I were to say it to you tonight, Watch what I do and do what I do. I tell that to some people that fish with me that aren't catching fish. I say, watch me. Do it the way I do it and you'll catch fish. Um, but that's a very, very important principle is that the only way we really know 
for sure how to live the Christian life in a correct way is to look and watch people who are doing it and imitate them. We learn by uh, imitation. Kids learn from their parents. They imitate what they do. They imitate what they see. And so if you want a better marriage, you look for people who have a good marriage and you do what they do. You want to raise good kids, you see people who have raised good kids, you do what they do. If you want to manage your money well, you find people who are managing their money well and you do what they do. You, s- you want to be healthy, you look, find somebody that's healthy and you do what they do. I uh, imitate those who are successful at whatever it is that they do. Um, there's not many people who actually do that. And the reason is because we have so much pride Exodus chapter 32, verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all this land which I have spoken I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And so our inheritance we will receive. Inheritance uh, is opposite in the Bible. And so we talk about inheritance and uh, if I use the word inheritance, you'll think about me getting something from someone that is older than me that died. But in fact, the Bible talks about our inheritance is what we earn in this life that God gives to us at the judgment seat of Christ. Anytime I hear the word inheritance, I always think of the bumper sticker my dad had on his pickup. And he had it for quite a few years. It it said, I being a sound mind, spent it all. (laughs) when actually he did die. I think that was a true statement. There wasn't much there. But uh, when you see the word inheritance in the Bible, it's what we inherit from God. And it's on the basis of what we've done in this life. It's sort of like uh, putting money in the bank, in a savings account, and that at a certain point, then you get it. And that's what's true of us as we live our life. What we're doing is going into this account that we have in heaven. And when we get there, then we are, it's presented to us. Psalms 37:22, for those blessed by him will inherit the land. 37:34, wait for the Lord, keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. Colossians 3:23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. The reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. He who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll receive rewards for how we've lived our life and we'll also uh, experience the consequence of the things we've done wrong. Number six, Hebrew, uh, uh, Hebrew 6, 13 through 20. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. He obtained the promise, which was a son, Isaac. For men swore by one greater than themselves, and an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things it is in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The hope set before us, hope uh, is defined in this life by people 
as maybe it will, maybe it won't. I sure hope it does, but who knows? The word hope in the Bible is not used that way. Um, Hope is the positive expectation of a future event that God has promised. Positive expectation of a future event that God has promised. So in 1 Corinthians 13, if you remember this, Paul says the three big words are faith, hope, and love. Those are the biggies. Faith, hope, love. Now people know what faith is, people know what love is, but the average individual, when you say, what's hope? Why is it included with faith and love as a major, major key uh, ingredient in our life. Well, the problem is is because we define it uh, the way our culture defines it instead of the way the Bible defines it. It's not maybe it will, maybe it won't. It's it will. So the, the, the hope that we have as an anchor of the soul is the hope that we are going to live with God forever and ever and ever because of our faith in Him. Psalms thirty-one twenty-four: Be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. All you who hope in the Lord, Psalm 71, 5, for you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. Romans 5, 2, through 5, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope. We exalt in hope of the glory of God. The glory of God will be when we receive a glorified body. Not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character hope hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of god has been poured out within our hearts through the holy spirit who was given to us so if we do a little quiz we get all done with this series on hebrews and uh, if i have 50 questions to see if you pass or not one of the questions would be uh, define hope because hebrew said it's anchor of our soul Exactly what is it? And you would respond, it's a positive expectation of a future event. And the key event is living with God in heaven forever. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will, sh- I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you. So having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope, the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Major key to running the race set before us with endurance is to have the strong encouragement that comes from setting our mind and the hope that we have that is that is based on God's promise to us. Setting our mind on the hope. So, uh, I have a couple of songs I sing all the time. I was working over in the house that the church owns that we're getting ready for Brandon. Uh, Morris to move into 
And because I don't remember words of songs very well, I make them up. And one of my favorite ones is, uh, besides Jesus loves me, this I know, is I'm going to heaven. And that's all I sing. I just sing, I'm going to heaven, 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 yeah, 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 I'm going to heaven. I can do that for hours. I'm going to heaven, I'm going to heaven. So, the key to endurance, that is not complaining, not grumbling, not giving up, not backsliding, not getting lukewarm, running with the race with endurance, is setting our mind on heaven. And so when I get up in the morning, I say, thank you, Lord, for the new day. I'm going to live today as if it's the last one before I stand before you, the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, And so in the morning, first thing, and then when I go to bed tonight, I'll put my head on my pillow. And the last thing I'll do is I say, Lord, thank you for the day. If you come tonight, that'd be so cool. That'd be so cool. And so I set my mind on his coming or my dying, my entrance into heaven. That's our hope. Uh, The positive expectation of a future event is I'm going to go to heaven. And so anything is bearable if you can see the end. I'll never forget the discussion I had with a young junior high boy. And he said, Pastor D, Jesus dying on the cross wasn't that hard. I say, why do you say that? Well, because he knew he was going to rise from the dead and go to heaven. Three days later. So, three days later you go to heaven? That's not so hard. <laughs> I know, well, you've got that figured out. Uh, and so that's the way we ought to live our life. Is life's not so hard because we're going to heaven. And we don't know when it'll be, but it's much closer uh, for most of us in this room than a lot of other people that we know. Katie's going to get there way behind us. <laughs> 